Hello and welcome back to another show of Network to Code on Network Collective. Today, I'm delighted to have someone on the show that needs absolutely no introduction. He has one of the most popular blogs out there. He has his own podcast. To be quite honest, he has the greatest memory recall I've ever seen in my life. Yvonne, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, you did sound like Dave Letterman, you know that. <laughs> I'll take that as a as a some kind of compliment. Maybe backhanded. It was. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it was. <laughs> I love his Netflix show. <laughs> cool, and I've watched some of those my uh, myself. All right, cool. So, so Yvonne, I think we first crossed paths. I can't believe I'm saying this. Maybe ten years ago. Maybe just shy. It was 2011, 2012. It was the start of the movement around SDN. OpenFlow, we've seen lots of startups come and go. We've seen overlays, Open vSwitch, ACI, NSX, Contrail, NS, you know, uh, Nuage, uh, Embrain, and and even Appster lately get get bought up by by Juniper. We've seen aggregation happen with Cumulus and some other companies that existed out there. So you know, let me ask you this: You're still very much ingrained in in traditional networking, cloud networking, network automation, still tracking all these trends. Where do you, you know, where do you think we are right now, given where we came from over the past, we'll say seven to ten years? Well, you know, being cynical, I would say we just went full circle. Because uh, in those days, everyone was, you know, overhyped how things will be different and how everything will be software defined. And we old timers said everything was software defined forever. What's the big deal? And uh, then, of course, that was all there just to, you know, inflate the balloon and get some VC funding. And some people got mightily rich out of this exercise and uh, many others, others crashed as always. What happened? Honestly, nothing. If you take a look at uh, any cloud provider, it's segments and routers and firewalls and VPN connections and load balancers and application firewalls. If you take a look at NSX, it's uh, virtual routers, tier zero, tier one, subnets, segments, uh, firewalls, load balancers, DNS, DHCP. Cisco ACI is the only one slightly different, but you know people just get so confused with that complexity that they use ACI as a VLAN manager. So what do you have? You have the VLANs, you have the VRFs, <laughs> you get the story. Yeah, and, and so do you think, again, again, given how you can summarize cloud into using more traditional constructs, so do you, do you think that you know, they have it right, mainly because of the usability of those platforms? Well, you see, uh, they couldn't fool around because they had to deliver a working service, which is the main difference between a cloud provider and a networking vendor. Networking vendor delivers promises and features, and cloud provider has to deliver a working service. So they are slightly different. They are very conservative. They go back to the first principles. What is layer two? What is layer three? What do we really need to send an IP packet from A to B. And then each one of them, like the big three, took a different approach to providing IP connectivity when you look behind the scenes. But uh, all three of them were aiming for providing connectivity at the minimum possible complexity and cost to them. And, and they, they easily have the ability to, to say no, right? You don't, you don't yeah. see it on the menu. You don't you don't get it, and like that inherently also you know saves you know saves some of that, right? Yeah, though I'm questioning that after uh, AWS introduced IP multicast. Hmm. <laughs> well, we will see we'll, we'll see where that goes. But I think for like for me, the takeaway looking at some of these newer solutions, we'll say in the SDN space and even even cloud solutions, it's even like features aside, if it's multicast or something else, I think like the usability has been like the biggest eye opener for you know for like for me like even looking at where we are today in and even the network automation space but you know if we if we look at where like where we came from i I've, i often try to credit martin you know casado you know founder of nicera and even openflow right back at stanford to where we are today in in network automation just because just because you know there were so many shortcomings you know that were uncovered with disaggregation and protocols and 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 stacks just curious like do you do you you know do you agree with that 
or, or do you think these are you know, totally orthogonal uh, paths that have emerged? Well, first, they are orthogonal because what they wanted to do, and it was slightly religious, was the centralized control plane, which, you know, people who have ever tried to do something like that figured out like many generations at many retries that it doesn't work. Uh, the comment I loved most came from a really old timer when I was teaching the SDM workshops. He said, well, I've seen IBM SNA in the 60s. I understand that they reinvented the concept. I had it enough the first time, so thank you. <laughs> no, uh, it's, it's fair. It's fair. It was about control plane separation. But but don't you think like that led to like really the, 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 the renewed focus on a management plane? Well, yeah, the hype that they generated triggered some people to, you know, at least do something. And because they couldn't do, well, the smart ones didn't want to do centralized control plane because that would only lead into support problems like uh, people who did centralized control plane discovered the hard way. So they had to do something. They had to do something that could be called software defined. And <laughs> uh, so they finally implemented APIs on network devices. Hooray. Juniper had them for 20 years. And then someone called that revolutionary and disruptive and whatnot. Uh, honestly, nothing I've seen in the network automation space is something that I haven't seen in some smaller instance uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, for sure, I I, I, I agree. Well, for me, it doesn't go back that far. So, <laughs> but maybe even maybe even just in the past, you know, 15, 15 years, you know, I think we've seen that quite a bit with the networking teams lagging behind. And I think hopefully it helps us that way we don't have to repeat you know, some of the, you know, some of the mistakes, maybe sysadmins or, you know, sysops tools have, you know, have executed upon. But otherwise, otherwise, you know, I agree. And even companies like Juniper, like it's so, it's so true. You know, they've had APIs for, for quite some time and maybe didn't capitalize as much as they, they could have, you know, when, you know, when they had them and, you know, come bringing it back to marketing and sales and, and, and really showing, you know, what the power of those APIs um, were. Uh, are you old enough to remember Digital Equipment Corporation, DEC? Yeah, for, for conceptually, from a high level. I had some family members that worked there, yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> and they had the most beautiful operating system ever, VEX VMS, and probably one of the best hardware architectures. And they couldn't, you know, get anywhere with that. And eventually they sold to Compaq, and Compaq was sold mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. HP or something. So, anyway... Juniper is deck of networking. Got it. Yeah, and and, and look, and and you know, again, as you said, you know, deck was was acquired. You know, Juniper, you know, Juniper is, <laughs> is, uh, you know, is is still around. But no, the truth is, definitely, you know, kudos kudos to them for being some of the. No, front they're runners. always technically excellent. They can't sell yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Some yeah. friends at Juniper will hate me for this. I'm sorry, guys, but you know. Yeah, no, no doubt. You know, I have, you know, some, you know, some friends there too. And, and still. They have again, great people. They have great engineers. Yeah. They have great uh, hardware. They have great software. They can't sell it. Yeah. Yeah. Again, hopefully again, across the industry, you know, I, I hope, I hope Juniper, I hope every other vendor out there figures out how to, to message appropriately, because I think it's just going to help, you know, help operators, help engineers across, across the industry. So I would, um, no, I would agree with that. So let's let's you know right now in the industry, you know, it's it's January, you know, twenty twenty one. You know, there's still you know a lot of of hype around around network automation and and you know, but it is here today. It's practical. It's very consumable. You know, based on how you how you approach it. And so let's talk about tools and concepts. You know, there for the past couple of years now, you know, Ansible continues to gain momentum. As as being one of the front runners in terms of getting started in turn in terms of tools into production, what is your you know what is your perspective when we start looking at you know, tools and concepts and and even getting started? Well, you know, if you just want to get started, then yeah, Ansible is probably the best place to start. 
because the barrier to entry is very low because of so many different networking modules and everything else that they have. They built uh, this huge ecosystem of uh, Lego bricks. You know, working with Ansible is like buying one of those Death Stars Lego sets. You get all these different Lego bricks and you just put them together in the right way and you have a beautiful thingy. As long as you want to build that beautiful thingy. The moment you want to do something else, you're missing the bricks. Or the bricks don't stick together. Or you can't connect them at 45 degree angle. Or whatever, they're the wrong color. So uh, with Ansible, you know, as long as you are sticking to simple things for which it was designed, it's a perfect tool. And if you combine it as a deployment tool with something else, some umbrella system on top of that, and there are smart people doing that, it's perfect. The moment you want to use it like a Swiss art, no, what? Multi-purpose tool that is stronger than a Swiss army knife, you run into problems and then you start extending it with uh, modules and filters and this and that and that and that. And the moment you start doing that, you're probably better off uh, using something else because Ansible, honestly, the performance sucks compared to some other tools. So yeah, if you need something that, for example, would log into all your devices and collect show tech and uh, collect all those files so you can send them to Cisco tech, Ansible is awesome. If you want to build a system, and a system should always start with, you know, what do we want to solve? What is our single source of truth? Where do we get the data? What is the user interface? Uh, who will consume that? And all those nasty questions that we want to skip because coding is so much fun. Uh, then Ansible could be a tiny little bit inside that solution but building the whole solution just with Ansible will probably suck. Yeah, and and uh, look, they've done a great job, you know, getting you know, getting lots of integrations to network devices out there. But you, you said you said a lot there, and I guess if we were to you know peel it apart, like even looking at something great to get started with, definitely again, even education wise, to use Ansible, you have to learn a little bit about YAML and JSON and and Jinja templates. So it's also you know good to bring it all all together. But in terms of in terms of like when you, when you get to that point, you know, let's say you start with some of the basic workflows. You know, again, it could be a, what you're saying. It could be show commands. It could be you know, generating reports. It could be even configuration management. You get to the point where where playbooks become we'll call them advanced, maybe complex, and you kind of you maybe see some of the the complexities and and maybe nested loops or you know data management right and and platforms like that data transformation. Data transformation, yeah, exactly, and then which forces, which often forces um, people to create custom modules, custom, you know, custom filters and things like that, and like that's often when you know I've heard quite a bit in the past too. Well, it's not so great there, so you know, don't don't customize it, but then then well, it's the alternative, and 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 not even even before answering that, like why is that why is that a bad thing? I guess look at it from perspective of if you can get you know seventy to eighty percent out of the box. And because it's open source, to extend it to meet your needs, which is giving, you know, again, I would argue maximum like, flexibility, power, and control. What is what is the downside to to be able to cater to even even half of the needs and then you know extend extend accordingly? Well, first, uh, let me say that uh, extending Ansible in some directions is extremely easy. Like Jinja two filters were a breeze. Uh, modules are probably much harder because they are distributed. There is part that's running on the Ansible controller, that's part that's running on the managed device or wherever there is the communication between them. So everything has to be properly packaged and everything. Uh, I would start writing a Jinja 2, a custom Jinja 2 filter in a second. Uh, I would think twice before even trying to write a module. So there are different dimensions of complexity there. Sure. The problem I have with uh, some evangelists preaching about Ansible is that it is the tool to solve all the problems in the world and bring peace to Middle East and, you know, whatever. Because uh, 
And network engineers, for whatever reason, you know, they love tools. They don't want to think in systems. So, for example, it's much more fun to tweak your OSPF config with nerd knobs than to design your network properly, right? And so we get, you know, all these different, uh, not so very totally stubby areas and all those crazy things, or don't get me even started on the BGP nerd knobs. <laughs> and uh, something like Ansible, you know, is a perfect fit to that mentality. And you tweak it into contorted positions it was never supposed to be in. And somehow you get the job done and you're so proud of yourself. And in the end, you have this pile of steaming write-only code that you will not understand tomorrow morning when you look at it. So I shouldn't blame the tools. I should blame the <laughs> users, but <laughs> it is what yeah, it no, is. No, no, look, I, I, know, I know what you're saying. And I think it's interesting if you look at it, it, it is hard in the beginning, you know, when you're first getting started in the space to have that systems approach architectural approach to really look at solving, you know, solving these problems within the networking domain. And I'd probably say, independent of tool, if it's Ansible, great. If it's something else, great. That, you know, they do force you to probably take the systems approach down the road because you end up writing these like low level, detailed, detailed workflows that at the end of the day to truly consume them, right, with, with a better interface call self-service, you actually need to build in those those abstractions, so you're not so your so so your day to day isn't managing those nerd knobs on those on those features. Yeah, but the problem is that people don't see that. You know, it's like uh, a lot of people stay stuck on the VLAN configuration tricks yeah. or OSPF tricks instead of saying, "Well, no, 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 no we need to redesign the whole thing." Uh, is the same thing here. They will write more and more and more convoluted Ansible or whatever tool-based solution mm -hmm. instead of stepping back and saying, okay, we painted ourselves into a corner, so let's wait for the paint to dry, get out and think it over. Yeah, no, no, it's it makes sense. And again, personally, everything these days is great if you can decouple Right, decouple user experience, decouple abstractions from what might even be doing execution, and and um, but at the end of the day, you know, if it's in the DevOps space and this and this tooling, if it's you know, if it's Ansible, if it's Salt, if it happens to be Puppet, you know, they're one of the first ones in this space that you know probably isn't doing you know too much right now in this in this space or even commercial solutions. So I would uh, you know I would agree that the usability and the thought process going top down. Is is often overlooked when you're getting started, but in order to to truly to truly adopt it, it there's a there's a gap there today. But but I guess it might not always come from like that that single authoritative tool, independent of you know whatever whatever it is. Yeah, well, uh, the more we are talking about this, the more I'm thinking that maybe uh, we should blame the mindset and not the tool. What was that? Blame the mindset of what? And not the tool. Oh, yeah, hundred percent. Oh, yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. We see that. We see that every every day. I would, and yeah, you know, like this. This is as as an industry, the networking organizations have been behind. And look, I think we've all we've all been there. You know, it just takes a lot of research, a lot of R and D effort up front, and uh, you know, enterprise and and timelines and budgets often often demand you know getting started and. Potentially bad decisions are made are made early on. <laughs> that's that's the reality that hasn't changed either, probably in decades. Yeah, yeah. and short-term workarounds are the most permanent solutions ever. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, touche, touche. Well, cool. And and you mentioned something else in terms of using using other platforms and tools, and we mentioned other open source, you know, frameworky platforms already. And what is your you know what is your take on something like a, a Nornir? Where does where does that fit in? Well, you see, I would say it's the Ansible for when you grow up. And now Ansible people will hate me. <laughs> uh, the challenge of Nurnir is that it is not as simple to use as Ansible. Uh, there is not as many ready-to-use modules. Because the real problem, as we both know, in network automation is uh, doing things in an idempotent way. 
so that if you configure the same service three times, it is not configuring three services, but just skipping the whole thing. And most of that is mostly built into Ansible modules. So if you're creating, I don't know, a virtual network in Azure or AWS, or you're creating a user, or you're trying to push some configuration into a network device, Ansible will do its best to figure out what's already there in most cases and uh, just do the changes. Whereas with something that doesn't have hundreds and hundreds of modules doing that, you have to do that on your own. So that's, you know, one of the shortcomings of Nornir. The second one is that you effectively have to invest a week or two of your time into learning Python because it's all Python based. Not that it would hurt your brain or that, you know, it would be bad for your career or anything. It's just something that needs to be done. And yet again, coming back to that earlier discussion, the worst thing you can do is to just, you know, grab some source code and do some Google and paste and hack together something that eventually work and declare mission accomplished and go home. You should really learn like any other tool. You should learn Ansible. You should learn Python the hard way and right. master them before you start, you know, being dangerous. Anyway, the benefit you get with Nornir is uh, flexibility and speed because it is all pure Python. You can do anything you can do in any programming language. So you're not no longer limited by YAML. You're no longer limited by lack of if then else statements. You're no longer limited by the crazy one module only loops or you have to include stuff that Ansible has. So you are dealing with a proper programming environment and you can do anything in there. Data transformation becomes, you know, a piece of cake. Yeah, it's boring. It has to be written and all that, but it can be done in the same way. Uh, and you get performance. Right. You said a lot there. I was taking some notes so I didn't so I didn't forget some of my thoughts. But you know, I had to laugh on one of the comments. I don't I don't think you meant it like this, but you know, you said spend a week or two learning learning Python for Nornir. I think you've done a fair bit of teaching in your career. I have I have as well. And so a week or two a week or two learning Python, if you don't have a background, I would say in in Python, even if it was just a week or two to, le to learn about Nornir, probably not being practical with like the amount of time to build. No, I, I said a week or two to learn <laughs> Python. <laughs> well, <laughs> obviously, it depends on uh, how fluent you want to get and what is your prior knowledge. So, for example, yeah, I'm cheating because... I had to learn like 10 different programming languages in the past. So for me, it was, you know, taking that, uh, what is it? Four inch thick book mm -hmm. and spending three days with it. And uh, I'm fluent enough in Python to be dangerous. And I'm sure uh, listeners, I, are, listeners are thinking, Yvonne read that book in three days, you know, it took me <laughs> three, three years to get through it and, and be able to make, to make sense. So no, but honestly, uh, you only need to read like the first third of that book. <laughs> right. Right. No, no. I, the first uh, page. Yeah, no, it's in interesting. And the, the, the learning and the pace is, is going to vary per person, but no, like the first point you said is like growing, you know, growing up from a tool into a Python based framework, like Nornir. And, and honestly, it can go either way. You know, it could be like if, if somebody's mastered, I would say, an open source, like DSL-enabled platform. Again, if it's a puppet, a, a chef, an Ansible, you know, assault, you know, with their own domain-specific language, you could you could grow into it nor near. You know, if you're very structured and ha have development teams in house, it can go the other way too. In terms of hey, this isn't working out, even with that amount of structure. Then you know, maybe then maybe there needs to be more integrations to you know some off the shelf tooling you know and and who knows it, it can go it can really go either either way there but I think if the abstractions are correct and exposed properly into into higher level systems you may also mention speed like do you think like where we are in twenty twenty one like speed like speed is is that important for the actual job execution well you see uh it really depends on how often you're doing stuff. So I uh, heard from someone who built, you know, uh, 
worldwide deployments tool for a global corporation with uh, activities in like 50 different countries with Ansible. And they were setting up greenfield sites, you know, in the middle of the jungle and crazy things like that. And uh, for him, time was of no essence. As he said, I don't care if the playbook runs an hour or two. Mm -hmm. It's only done once. Uh, similarly, I know that it was UBS, I think, and they were talking about it so I can mention it. Uh, they automated new data center deployments years ago and they did the right thing. So everything was uh, done with network automation. And uh, then they would run the site tests in the evening and the tests would run the whole night and the morning you, they will get back and get the report of what's wrong. And then they would fix things the next day and continue doing that. And in a week or so, they would have a brand new data center, racked, stacked, wired, upgraded, configured, everything. So for them, also time was of no essence because, you know, if it finishes in one hour, if it finishes in eight hours, we'll, we're continuing tomorrow morning anyway. We are Swiss, we are precise. Uh, if you need results re reasonably fast, like you want to have self-service, you want to, the users to deploy something, uh, the users don't want to wait 10 minutes or 30 minutes like in Azure when you deploy the virtual network gateway and it is done in 30 minutes, it should be done in seconds. Or if you're doing troubleshooting and you need to collect information from 20, 30 different devices, do you really want to wait for three minutes with someone screaming on the phone? Absolutely not. No, I think for me, like the one, the one takeaway is, again, independent of the framework being, well, two takeaways actually, as I think about it, and even here's talk, is using these frameworks are definitely a great starting point because you know I've seen a lot of folks you know try to do 100% custom, and you know custom Don't. you know doesn't doesn't work out so so well in the long run. So for, you know frameworks you know frameworks are a huge win. The other thing, really independent of the framework, because these are open source, like there really is opportunity to be able to modify how you execute on them. Like even 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 in theory, if it's Nornier, if it's other other platforms, you could distribute you know, worker nodes. And again, this is, this is sort of going down that path. If you're truly going to adopt, I would say a, you know, I'll call it a, I'll say a DevOps, you know, slash a lower, a lower level approach to managing, you know, some of the nuts and bolts, you know, there, there are ways to, to scale execution, you know, if it, if it truly is critical for the environment, but uh, cool. So, you, you know, you, you know, we mentioned Ansible quite a bit and you, know, you had some, you know, some, you know, comments and again, you know, pros and cons to discuss. But I did see, I think it was last week, I did see a response. You, you must have made a comment on Twitter or maybe in a blog. And I feel like they were responding to you in Twitter, like adding a feature you needed or adding a feature on operational operational data, text parsing. So it looks like your influence is, is still is still there. And you know, any any future requests, you know, feel free to Feel free to have at it. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, uh, we had an interesting discussion a while ago. Uh, I, I'm always amazed at how it looks like I'm the first one to hit some, you know, totally trivial bugs. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to do was uh, I wanted to configure, you know, OSPF and ISIS with one deployment sequence to make things faster because you don't really you don't want to go into device configuration too many times because what ansible does is show run and then it compares the things and then it pushes the new stuff so i learned the hard way that the sane way to do things is build everything into one file and push the file out uh, being a structured person i wanted to have ospf separate from isis and how do you configure OSPF? Well, you do something in the routing process, you do something on the interface. How do you configure ISIS? You do something in the routing process, you do something on the interface. And so you have, you know, router blah, interface X, router blah, blah, interface X. I push that 
through and the whatever device config module because they all do the same uh, diff logic somewhere in the background was totally confused and just skipped the interfaces a second time. Hmm. And everything was configured on one single interface the second time. So I was slightly vocal about that and some people didn't like it. But then we, yeah, we figured out that, yeah, they fixed that uh, once it got proper attention from people actually doing stuff, uh, it got fixed and I tested it and I said, yeah, guys, the fix works for me. It's beautiful. We're all friends. And now they occasionally uh, send me tweets about some new features that are coming out. This one, I think, was effectively the data comparison. So you are extracting some data from the device. You know what you should be expecting. And now let's do a data model diff to see if the two things match. Something like, it, it looked like something like Napalm Validate, but yeah, I didn't have time to go into it yet, but I will. Yeah, the, the nice thing is, you know, again, small industry. We're all, we're all friends. <laughs> we all have to be friends. The, 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 well, the move, occasionally, the we are friends. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, cool. So, in terms of question for you, and you know, I'll phrase it a bit differently than we discussed it in the past. You know, even across the industry around, around open source and commercial platforms. You know, the, the truth is, you know, organizations of, of various sizes may never adopt into production. An open source framework or or a platform, you know, just due to um, requirements, process, approvals, and so on. But do you do you think like well, what is your opinion? Do you think there's value in and even if you're deploying a commercial platform that you know quote unquote you know does network automation, that it actually makes sense to learn some of these lower level constructs along along the path to have a different a different vantage point and, and more perspective around how to even enable that that you know platform that you're paying for? Well, uh, there are like five different questions in this simple question. So to start with the in reverse order, yes, it absolutely makes sense. Because I, if you want to be an engineer, and uh, I see many people where I wonder why they have engineer in the title, because engineer should mean something. If you want to be an engineer, then you should understand how things work. And to understand how things work, you have to break things, you have to rebuild things. And doing that with low-level tools is more effective than uh, with some fancy GUI that does magic behind the scenes and you don't even understand how that magic works. The second problem is that because networks are different, you know, every network does different way of routing IP because you can route IP in so many different, different ways. I'm being sarcastic here, obviously. <laughs> uh, because networks are different and expectations are different and so on, you will never ever get a tool that will do what you want. Particularly if that tool is not flexible and uh, programmable either with Python or some domain-specific language. And I think you've been on that network field day where Abstra was showing how you can write your own extensions to what Abstra is doing in Python. And Cisco NSO, you can do that in Java. And yeah, with Ansible, you can do that with Python. So don't ever expect to just buy a tool and use it. So whatever you buy, if you want to use it properly, it will have to be customized. And that's why most network management deployments are total failures because, you know, no one, no one budgets the time to customize the tool to fit your needs. Yeah, I agree. I was going to make the same, the same comment is, is, yeah, I don't care if you, if you buy it, you download it open source or not. You know, if you don't understand extensibility options on, on you know, when it can't do something you need it to do from a variety of places, you know, more than likely, if it doesn't have those features, it's just going to get shelved, you know, shelved early on in the deployment lifecycle. And, you know, which brings us to like the first part of your question, open source or not. And uh, I don't think that open source and commercial are... The alternatives, I think they're more like two dimensions. 
because you can have open source solutions like Ansible that are commercial because they have either commercial license or commercial support attached to them. Or you are allowed to use it for X devices. I'm making this up. Yeah. Uh, but after that, you have to pay license, which uh, some people might call the Columbium pharmaceutical model, but let's not go there. Uh, what really matters is that uh, you can see what's going on behind the scenes, which you cannot do with non-open source solution, regardless of whether it's commercial or not. And whether you can extend things, which is yet again harder if you can't see what's going on. Because if you try to extend something and it fails, yeah. what are you going to do? Yeah, no, agreed. Cool. No, Ivan, this is great. So I want to I wanna talk about a topic or a project, I should say, that you released recently, just because you know, you're doing a lot in this space and, and always thinking about simplifying getting started, as, as I have too, historically. And you know, so you announced a project called NetSim Tools on, on GitHub, I believe, last month. I guess you want to you know, talk a bit about what that is and, and what it offers folks to get started? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for mentioning it. Uh, you know, I was always upset at how long it took me to set up a new virtual lab. And with some tools like Viral, uh, don't get me wrong, I love Viral. I just hate that you have to use GUI. Because uh, I always believed into having things configured through text files. I'm too old for GUI, let's call it that way. <laughs> uh, not to mention that you can put them in Git and div them and all that, you know, crazy DevOpsy stuff exactly. that got so popular recently. When we were young, we only had the text editor, so text files it is. Anyway, I love uh, configuring things in text files because then if you need two routers, I can just do copy-paste, which is slightly harder to do in uh, a GUI sometimes. Uh, so I was always looking for something where I could just define the topology that I need. And uh, then I would say, well, build me the lab out of that. And Cumulus got pretty close to that with their uh, tool that would convert the dot files, which is really the descriptions of graphs, into Vagrant file, which is the file that Vagrant would then use to start the virtual lab. But I wanted to go beyond that. I wanted to solve the other problem that I always hated, which was once you, once you create that virtual lab, you spend the next two hours logging into devices and typing in interface X, IP address Y, and you get that all wrong. And then you have to do troubleshooting for the next half an hour to figure out which IP address you mistyped. And after all that is done, then you can start doing the fun part. So I always wanted to have something that would allow you to not just build the physical topology, but also set up the addressing plan, assign the addresses to the interfaces, deploy the initial configurations to the routers, so that after a few minutes, you would have fresh, brand new, addressed and configured remote lab that you could just log into and start enjoying doing whatever you want to do. And uh, the other thing I sort of wanted to do was test how easy it would be to do data transformation in Python. Because I was doing data transformation in numerous ways in the past. I'm old enough to work with XSLT, if anyone remembers that. It was a great tool. It just wasn't popular and it had too many tags. Anyway, uh, so, you know, I combined these two and I said, well, let's build a tool that would solve these two problems. And the first release, I focused on uh, Vagrant on KVM with LiveVirt because Dinesh that persuaded me that this is the way to go. Honestly, I love it because it can spin up the virtual machines in parallel. So if a Cisco box takes two minutes to boot and an Arista box takes, takes two minutes to boot, and I need a 10 node lab, I don't care because I have the lab done in two minutes, not in 20 minutes. So I invested some time in building those boxes and all that. And then my tool would create a vagrant file out of the topology. 
and that was beautiful. And then I added the addressing the initial, you know, transformation of nodes and network topology into node data model with interfaces and IP addresses and neighbors defined on the interfaces. And that worked well. And then that turned into let's generate Ansible inventory out of that. And once I have Ansible inventory, I always hate it. So how you have to use Vagrant SSH to log into something uh, instead of just connect to it because, you know, the IP address is something and the port number is something else. And you all have that in the Ansible inventory, but you're not using it. So I just wrote this simple script that uh, would take the SSH parameters out of Ansible inventory and connect to the device. You know, using Ansible inventory as a single source of truth. And then came the module that would do the initial device configuration based on the data model. And that was, I think, release 0.1 or something. And then I started playing with dual stack stuff. So I needed IPv4 and IPv6 addressing. And someone from our, is it Arcos, the company? I believe I saw that in your repo. I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, or is it Arcus company and Arcos is the operating system, something. Uh, one of these uh, startups with uh, next generation routing suites, uh, one of them just grabbed this tool and said, this is beautiful, I need this. And so he added support for their boxes. Uh, so right now it's six platforms that this thing works with and it's all on uh, LiveVirt still. And now you can do IPv4, IPv6, and you can use different address pools for WAN links, for LAN links, for whatever links. And then someone said, well, you know, well, when will you support some other virtualization environment? So release 03 that came out this week uh, now has support for VirtualBox with Vagrant. And uh, I was only able to bring uh, Nexus 9300V up and running on my in my particular environment. So that one I know works. Arista should work, but it didn't work for me. Uh, everything else, I just didn't want to waste my time building boxes for VirtualBox if I already have the boxes for. Sure, know, sure. Libert. It makes sense. I looked it up at the check. It was Arcus is the company. ArcOS is the, is the OS. Just to, just for clarity. Yeah. So, so in terms of the workflow to get started, it sounds like step one is defining the you know the OS or the images and topology. And then you click go to generate vagrant files and everything else? Well, yeah. Effectively, what you have to do is you have to create a YAML file because, you know, everything is done in YAML these days. Why not? Uh, where you just have to list two things. Well, three. First one that you can do in advance is the defaults. So for this device on this provider, use this box. Or you can just use my naming, in which case you don't even need to change the defaults. And then for a lab topology, all you have to do is you have to say, I have these nodes. And you can specify either the default device type for all nodes. For example, if you're building a lab out of Cisco IOS V routers, just say all devices are IOS V and let's move on. And then you just have to list the nodes or you can with each node say, well, this node is whatever, Nexus OS. Uh, and then you have to define the links between the nodes where yet again, it could be as simple as text strings R1-R2 or it could be as complex as a dictionary listing all the nodes that are connected to the link and the link prefix and the link type and the Linux bridge name and a few other parameters. And then just run the magic tool and you can get out the extended data model augmented with all the IP addresses and, and everything or, and or you can get out the Ansible inventory, Ansible config file and Vagrant file. Next step, Vagrant up. You wait three minutes. Next step, you run the initial config task and there are templates for all the supported platforms. Mm -hmm. 
And after another minute, you have everything addressed and configured and reachable and properly named and everything you want. Let me ask us how many of your, you mentioned six, how many of those, I haven't tracked this recently, how many of those vendors have a Vagrant box you can just use versus having to generate the box yourself? None. Uh, I think that uh, Cumulus, and I, I still need to implement Cumulus support, Cumulus might have Vagrant Box for Libvirt. Uh, no one else does. I think in the past, VSRX might have had one in the past. I haven't. I haven't not for, for VirtualBox, not for it. Libvirt. Got it. Got for VirtualBox, you have a really old VSRX. You have QFX 10K. Uh, you can get VMX, but uh, you have to nicely talk to the account manager. Uh, Arista has VEOS as a vagrant box. Cisco has Nexus 9300V as a vagrant box. And all vagrant boxes, so Cumulus, Cisco, Arista, Juniper, QFX, 10K, and Cumulus, they're all for virtual box. Okay. Uh, CSR, iOS V, VSRX 3.0, they don't have any boxes that I could find. Notice to the vendors, we need containers and Vagrant boxes for all these images to improve improve testing and dev environments, right? Yeah, <laughs> notice, for to years. The, notice to the gigs building labs, <laughs> be careful with containers. Yeah. Yeah, not going to spend too much time on it, but we've done a lot of work internally to run VMs and containers with VRNet Lab, and and there's still a lot of heavy lifting to get the first container image built per per OS, and no different yeah. than the time it takes to probably get the Vagrant boxes uh, built out. Well, VRNet Lab is different because there, uh, Christian took the approach of, I will run a VM in a container. Correct. So instead of KVM, he decided to go with Docker, whatever it is he's using. Good for him. Uh, the problem I'm seeing is uh, vendors selling their, well, selling, offering, I should say, their routing suites as containers. So there is now Junos in a container. There is now EOS in a container. You have to be careful whether this is a full-blown device that can do packet forwarding or whether this is just control plane. At least for Junos, what I got uh, through some friendly intervention of a friendly Juniper engineer was just the control plane. <laughs> and the control plane was running, it was perfect, everything worked, but I couldn't even use Junos facts on it because it didn't have any interfaces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, we actually had a project where we ran Arista's container EOS and Amazon's cloud with an EKS. Which is their Kubernetes infrastructure, mm -hmm. and there's some you know similar similar things getting null strings back for some you know facts, and needed to needed to change. That was oddly enough being managed um, by by Cisco NSO had to manually change the model that was ingesting the equivalent of facts. So initially it was it was uh, it was broke. So. No, it's different. It's not broken. It's different. <laughs> it was designed. It was designed with that in mind. Cool, Yvonne, This is great. One, as we wind things down, you know, there's a question that I usually you know ask at the end around advice and things like that. But maybe I'll ask it a bit differently. You know, to you, you've been you've been around. You know, been around for you know quite some time and a lot of vast experience. So, what about for you? Like for you personally, if we just look at the past, we'll say the past handful of years, you have a background that probably doing automation years ago, but with like, with the rebirth of it for you, you call it in the past, you know, three, four, five, six years, however long it's been, would you do anything differently personally? Like if you were restarting, you know, your, your, um, you know, re rebirth into network automation? Hmm. Probably not. I mean, uh, there were, things in the past that maybe should have been automated. Um, it was hard in those early days, as you know, because the vendors just didn't give us the APIs or mm -hmm. some consistent way of configuring boxes. But no, I don't think so. 
No, that's great. So I guess if you look forward in the next six months to a year, do you have any anything you want to share on on your list of what's to come? You know, topics you're going to cover or tools you're going to explore and and share with the community. Oh, you mean my coffee break? Yeah, I'm looking forward <laughs> to it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so the lady running logistics for IP Space decided to move on, and honestly, she told me that when she started. So. I'm grateful she survived that long with me, but she did take over all the logistics and uh, effectively she was running the company. <laughs> uh, so with her gone, I had to go back to the whiteboard and said, well, do I want to reinvent another wheel or should I call it a day? And neither option, you know, seemed palatable. <laughs> So uh, in the end, we figured out how I will slow down, um, probably still, well, I will definitely blog, no doubt about that. Uh, I will produce some content because it's fun to do. Uh, I probably won't respond to vendor press releases and all other hype anymore, <laughs> because honestly, who cares? Uh, Time-wise, uh, this is happening end of June, and uh, then I would have the summer break anyway. So you will see changes coming uh, beginning of September. Cool, cool. Yeah, thanks. And for we are figuring things out as we go. So anything might happen. Yeah, thanks for sharing, and I hope I hope we all have a you know great summer with everything going on in the world. Hopefully, hopefully allows us to. You know, to get outside and interact, interact more with each other. So yeah, that would be great, but you know, we'll see. Yvonne, thank you so much. Anything else you want to share before we before we part ways? Automate everything. That's it. Automate one <laughs> network at a time. Yvonne Pepiniak, yeah. thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, thanks for having me.